next on World Radio Gardening, Great Tree Beauties. I'm Oliver Rogers and I want to share my passion for trees through this series of programmes looking at some of England's great tree beauties. England has more ancient oaks than all other European countries combined. If we counted all the oaks with a trunk girth greater than 9 metres, there are 115 in England compared to only 96 in the rest of Europe. But only 16% of England is forested, compared to some countries like Finland and Sweden, where the figure is well above 60%. The UK is vital for historic and ancient trees, as we've seen with the outpouring of grief since the loss of the sycamore that was felled at Sycamore Gap on Hadrian's Wall, or the protest to protect street trees in Sheffield. The English love our trees. Welcome to Great Tree Beauties. On today's show, we take an audio tour of Hatfield Forest in the company of an expert guide, David Simmons, a volunteer for the National Trust. This ancient forest near London is nearly 1,000 acres and dates back to Norman times. Hatfield Forest is a unique site as we can see all the elements of a medieval forest, such as deer, cattle, coppice woods, pollards, scrub, timber trees, grassland and fen. So come on a wonderful journey through Hatfield Forest and take an audio tour. So forest bathing is a term you might have heard of and it means getting out and about in wooded areas and enjoying the countryside. And whilst that's been a bit restricted recently, well, Hatfield Forest is on our doorstep and is a wonderful location owned by the National Trust. And, well, we couldn't exactly go to the forest ourselves, so we've brought the forest to us. And I'm very pleased to be joined by David Simmons from Hatfield Forest. And David, just start off by telling us, what's your role at the forest? I've been a volunteer at Hatfield Forest for um, just over 12 years, I think it is now. I work on what's called the Visitor Experience Team. And our job is to make visitors to the forest feel welcome. We try and explain the uh, background, the history to the forest. We give some guided walks from time to time. We keep the, uh, particularly the area around the shell house and the, the lake, we keep it clean and tidy. We do litter picking, for example, I'm afraid to say. We um, make sure that dogs are kept under control because not everybody likes dogs chasing after them. And also, of course, it causes problems for the birds on the, on the lake. We also do a small amount of coppicing work and keeping the trees tidy and controlled around that, that, around that area. So we're there really to to greet people and meet them. Also in the lake area, we've got the shell house. And whenever I can, I like to show people the shell house because it's a feature of the forest that nobody expects to find there, a very attractive part of the forest. So we're there, as I say, backing up the, the staff of the forest to make sure everyone enjoys their visit. That's lovely. It's wonderful, isn't it? And do you get a lot of pleasure out of being outside working in the forest? Yes, I do, because one of the strange things, my background was working as an economist in a foreign exchange dealing room in the in the city of London. 
And my family, we've always lived in Chelmsford, and my family, we used to go over to the forest. And one Saturday, I was reading the Financial Times, and I came across a book review in it of a book called The Last Forest by Oliver Rackham. And when I read it, I borrowed it immediately as I could from Chelmsford Library, and then I bought myself a copy, and I just could not believe this book of, I don't know, 250, 300 pages all about Hatfield Forest. And it really sort of opened my eyes um, to the, the wonders of the forest, its importance. And so, you know, that was really the sort of the great sort of introduction that made me realise that there was a lot more to it than, than actually met the eye. And as Oliver Rackham would say, you know, Hatfield Forest is, is possibly unique in the world in offering all the features of a woodland forest. Well, let's start off with that then. So what would you say are some of those features? Ancient trees? Well, some of the trees are ancient, but it's really the, the techniques of woodland management. In Hatfield Forest, we have two principal methods of woodland management. One is coppicing, where trees are cut down to soil height and then re allowed to grow again. And the other method is called pollarding, where trees are cut off at six or seven feet above ground. The, the purpose of this is that a woodland forest is very much a sustainable um, environment where trees are growing and they are being cut back with the, the wood that is resulting from it being used, for example, for, um, for fires in particular, Essex obviously doesn't have much coal, if any coal at all. So the wood that was being cut down would be used for, for fires, for burning, for pastry ovens, for all that sort of thing. Woods of that type can also be used for making hurdles, for various small-scale construction. And also you have the, the timber, the large trees, which would be used for building, for boats and things like that for churches. Now, the way you have coppicing, you have to have a fence around it, because if you didn't have a fence around it, um, you would find that the animals would very quickly eat back the eat back the shoots. Where we have the pollards, the pollards exist on the wood pasture, it's called, and Hatfield Forest has got one of the best examples of wood pasture probably in the world. What you do there is you allow the animals to graze, but because the tree has been cut at six or seven feet high, the animals cannot reach up and eat the, the shoots. So we have that. And uh, we also have the plains with their magnificent buttercups come late April, May time. So that is part of the, the feature of it. In terms of buildings on the forest, we still have the original forest lodge, probably dating back, who knows, it could be, you know, 15th, it could be 14th century, timber construction very much modified over the years, bits have been added and bits have been taken away. So we've got the house where the, the forest, um, the chief forester would have lived. We've also got the, the Warren cottage, there was a, a rabbit warren there, War rabbits were kept for meat and for fur. We also have the other features. We've got um, a number of historic trees, probably some of them, um, you know, probably 500, uh, probably 1,000 years old, some of the really ancient trees. The problem with it's always not, never very easy to judge the age of a tree, especially where it's been coppiced or pollarded. But we certainly have a lot of very, very old trees. And in addition, of course, we have... Uh, the cattle grazing on the um, the wood pasture, the the red pole cattle, and we've also got surviving the the fallow deer 
that were introduced probably round about 1100 by Henry I. They were they came from um, Sicily, and they were the the, the reason for a forest was that it was a place where the king would chase or his people would chase the deer. And that was really what the word forest means, a place of deer. And all these features are still visible at, at Hatfield Forest, which makes it very unusual, if not unique. There's lots there to unpack, but I'm yes. fascinated by your description of the forest as a bit of a living factory. If we sort of go back to kind of Victorian period and sort of perhaps interwar years as well, you know, one thing I noticed about the forest is that there's this whole collection of pubs that either all around the forest you know so uh, we have a modern day pub the green man is still there just on the kind of the main road at, just outside of takeley there but then you've got places like the ancient forester at bush end and also the doodle oak pub uh, which is up the other end of the forest there as well and this was because there was such a large community of workers wasn't there that's right. I mean, when I talk about the coppices, um, Hatfield Forest was originally split up into seven distinct coppice areas, each one with its with its own name. So Elgin's Coppice, um, Lodge Coppice, uh, Street Coppice. And each of these 17 um, coppices were cut down on a rotation. You didn't cut the whole forest in one go. What you would do, you would one, make your way round the the forest the workmen would go around the forest and every year they would cut one particular coppice area so the the cycle at Hatfield traditionally would be 17 years it's a bit like you know painting the fourth road bridge fourth fourth bridge you'd go round the forest cutting cutting one coppice then move on to the next and round and then after the 17 year you'd be back to the first one again and this was how the the forest was managed and I mean, I'm not sure I've never seen a figure, I think, for how many people would have actually been working out on the forest at any one time. But clearly there was always a good number of people there. And, you know, timber work is, is heavy work. And I suspect they, at the end of the day, they had a they had a great thirst for a, for a pint of beer or or cider or whatever. So I think, yes, that really explains why there are so many pubs around the area. Yeah, and coupled with farm labourers as well, I assume. Yes. As well, you know, oh, yeah. yes. That's right. The people looking after the cattle yeah. and so on. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's go right back to the, the creation of the forest, because forests were a distinct sort of legal entity back in the kind of the early to late Middle Ages. And they were set up by the king, weren't they? That's right. Yes. I mean, it was a bit of a sort of a, a royal status symbol. The... Um, they were set up originally by the Norman kings, um, William the Conqueror and Henry I. They were two of the great sort of people who established forests. And of course, there are forests, you know, throughout the country. Um, the New Forest, obviously, Exmoor Forest, Tetford Forest. And I think in a sense, the fact that they are so different shows that a forest means originally meant, meant deer rather than actually trees, because um, Exmoor, Forest, Exmoor Forest does not really have very many trees on it because it was never a wooded forest in the same way as Hatfield Forest was a, was a wooded place. So the king, um, it's one of those strange stories. The a fallow, fallow deer are not native to this country. I know we see a lot of them now in Essex around the county, but fallow deer are an import and they actually came from Italy. The, the Normans um, were a great... Um, 
they spread out across Europe. And one of the branches of the family went to went to Sicily. And they ruled Sicily, as I say, round about, I don't know, 1085, something like that. The king of um, Sicily, rather unlikely name, was King Roger. And King Roger um, discovered that in Sicily there was a lot of chasing of fallow deer going on. Fallow deer originally came from Persia, probably, and they sort of spread across the Mediterranean from, from Persia via by the Holy Land, as we would call it now, to to um, to Sicily, and fallow deer are great animals for chasing. They they are great ones for sort of hunting, and so Roger, um, it's thought, gave them away as, as Christmas presents and presents to other members of his family, and somehow, and I mean. I know people have often asked me this show, can you really imagine these uh, fallow deer coming by boat or whatever um, from Sicily to, to Hatfield Forest? And yeah, it does take a bit of imagination, but we're fairly sure that that is, that is what happened. And so the fallow deer came to the forests like Hatfield Forest, and they were very much, as I say, a status symbol. The, the king was the only person who had the, the uh, right to, to venison. And so he would have it himself on his on his own table. And also, of course, because he was the only person that had it, it was a very good present. If he wanted to give a, a present or an award to a, a, one of his nobles, what would he do? He would give them venison because the people that dined on that venison would know Earl Southwood is in good form with the king. The king has given him some venison to eat on his table. So the, the venison was always at that time considered to be a very sort of royal meat and you know very high status meat. And I think, as I say, the fallow deer make, uh, make good chases. And so, uh, you know, they... They, they that was what was sort of done as a, as a sport and at the end of it you know the deer would be caught and killed and the um venison would be would be served up and this is all enshrined, is all enshrined. in like the forest law and the charter of the forest you know which goes along that's, with the carter doesn't it that's right i mean if you go to the the british library one of my favorite places in london i mean up on the wall there yes you can read all the um all the forest laws and everything yes they were a, they were a very um, important sort of part of the, the fabric of society. And just one of the sort of, uh, say, misconceptions, I know Oliver Rackham sort of argues that we all, we've all heard about forest law, about people having their hands cut off and all, all sorts of things like that as a punishment for breaking the, breaking the um, forest law. But in actual reality, that probably didn't happen all that often. Because when you think of it, um, kings don't particularly want to cut people's hands off. You know, what good does that do? It means, they, it means they can't work and they're going to become a burden and so on. They won't be able to hold a bow and arrow and things like that. So they're, they're, you know, a person without an arm, a hand is, is pretty useful. Useless. What do you do? You say, well, unless you give me a couple of guineas, I'm going to cut your hand off. And it was really a sense, it could well have been a way of a form of sort of taxation, as it were. People who were caught, particularly if they were nobles, would be expected to pay the king money. And of course, you know, we, we all know sort of income tax and everything else throughout our history, the, the rulers have always wanted money to spend on you know, building castles and fighting wars. So the um, the forest law was really more about, or the enforcement of forest law was probably more about getting money than it was actually about punishing people through you know, physical means. Did, did Hatfield Forest have a set of aldermen, a bit like the New Forest had then, and a court that went along with that, that, that would deliberate think, on these? 
Yes, I think there were forest calls. I think um, I'm not sure it was specific to Hatfield Forest or whether it was the whole of the whole of the Forest of Essex, because Hatfield is just one of what well, is the surviving best surviving forest in Essex. There are sort of others. There's um, Rittle Forest and there was Hainault Forest. And of course, there's the the other large forest, of course, was um, Epping Forest. Mm. But Hatfield Forest is the only one of those that has survived in a sort of a meaningful way. I mean, um, Epping Forest is obviously now completely sort of bisected by roads and hasn't really got much tranquility to it, whereas Hatfield Forest remains much more readily, um, much easier to see as a forest as as, as it would have operated. Well, that's fascinating, David. Let's take a break for some music now and we'll be back with David Simmons, who's telling us about the history of Hatfield Forest. Simmons, who's a visitor experience ranger at Hatfield Forest, and he's telling us a bit about what he gets up to there and also about the history of the forest as well. And David, you said you work around the lake area a lot in the centre of the forest there, and you get to see the Shell House building. So tell us about how that came to be there, because I think the lake is or was a pleasure lake, wasn't it? The forest had various owners, and the most sort of recent were were a family called the, the well, it just it's they were called the Hublons or Hublands, 
Um, and the, the, the Hublons were a family that came originally from um, Lille in North France. They were, they were Huguenot religious refugees, if you like. And they came to this country probably in Tudor times and were very important uh, merchants, became important merchants and financiers in the, in the city of London. And in fact, the first governor of the Bank of England was actually one of the family. And if you look, it's no longer in circulation, but if you um, look back uh, to the Bank of England £50 note from 1995, it's actually got the, the Hublon house on it, which happens to have been in Threadneedle Street. And I think that's not sort of unconnected with the fact that that's where the Bank of England is today. But anyway, the, the Hublons, there were, there were sort of, um, I think it was five or six brothers, and they all sort of passed away together. And all the wealth of the family went down to one particular one particular person. And they were looking for a for a house somewhere to live. And the Hatfield estate, Hatfield Forest estate came on the market and they bought it, partly because it was midway between nicely on the way between London and, and Cambridge. And one of the features that it was built by um it was owned by Jacob Hublon and in 1759, the Shell House was designed by his um, granddaughter, Letitia, and she was just 17 years old at the time. And it was very much a building as a picnic house. It was designed as a picnic house. The, the family never lived at Hatfield Forest. They lived at some Hallingbury Place, which is about two or three miles away. And they absolutely, they had formal gardens there, but they, at Hatfield, they absolutely adored the forest. They loved taking people out to see the, to see the animals. They had peacocks there. And as I say, one of the features was the, was the shell house. And it's one of these amazing survivals. One of the problems is that the foundations are non-existent, really. The building flexes, and there are various problems with it, which is why um, some parts of the, the masonry have, have fallen off, the rendering have fallen off. But it was designed, as I say, round about 1759 by, uh, by Letitia, and it was decorated with, um, with shells, now, the shells are a little bit controversial these days because it's thought that they probably came in ballast from, from slave ships, from, particularly from the West Indies and other parts of the world. Now, a few years back, uh, we had a conchologist, who's a person I'm sure all your listeners will know, a person who studies shells, and he said, yes, these shells are from all over the world. And what they did, I think, they the sailing boats needed to be weighed down. They were a bit, particularly coming back to Britain, they needed some weight in them to keep them, you know, nicely trimmed in the water. Mm. And they put into the boats the, all the, the sand and the shells and everything. And when they came back to this country, these shells were in huge demand. I think they were, they'd never been seen before. They were sort of quite real sort of um, articles of interest. And the, the Hublons being a, a wealthy family, you know, they, they thought, oh, yes, let's use them to decorate the shell house. House. And there they are up on the ceiling of the shell house to this day. And I should just say as well, they, they also found um, a fossil there. The, the, the front of the shell house, the, the, the um, animal, the bird that's on the front of it, um, the middle part of it is actually a mollusk, which could be anything from 145 to 65 million years old. So there's a lot of, sort of the history goes really way, way back. So as I say, the, the shell house was their picnic house. They um, 
Originally, there were two large oak trees beside it. You can see them now. And they had lanterns on them. So the family would come down of the evening and they would have a picnic down there, overlooking the, the lake, which was designed by Capability Brown. It's a very, it's his traditional style. He would have dammed a small stream and given the impression of a great big lake, a great big river flowing in front. And of an evening of eating a picnic down there, I think it must have been a very, very pleasant experience with the, as I say, the peacocks and the, perhaps the deer coming along and, and fishing uh, and so on. And you know, it really must have been a lovely evening's experience for the, for the hoblons to, um, to entertain people. And one of my particular interests at the forest, really coming forward a little bit, um, is in the in the Shell House, there is a, um, a visitor's book which starts in 1892 and runs through to 1923, just before the forest came to the National Trust. And it's a wonderful, wonderful um, social record of, um, of the people that visited it. So you've got you know, the Prince of Wales, Bertie, coming to visit it with a... With a, with a party, and um, you've also got Bishop Stortford Workhouse. Uh, you've got a complete sort of social mix of people visiting, not, I should say, on the same day. And you had school visits, you had church visits, you had individuals coming from all over the country, from what, from all over the, the British Empire, as it was at the time. And it's an absolutely wonderful record of the people that visited. I mean, quite a number of people visited from, from Johnsford, I think from Dunmo as well. So the forest has always been loved. The, the Hooblons uh, predated the, the National Trust in welcoming people to go and visit they were always very happy, I think, for people to look at the forest, to enjoy themselves. So although forest bathing is a term we use, you know, we use recently, I think the idea of going out and enjoying open countryside, going out and seeing the animals, seeing the trees, um, enjoying the, the, the lake, probably rowing a boat on it and so on. We know there was a boathouse. All that sort of thing, you know, has got a very long history at Hatfield Forest. And the National Trust, you know, carries on those sort of um, activities today. Lovely. Well, we're going to talk about some of the ancient trees that are in the forest or were in the forest in just a moment. I'm talking to David Simmons, who is a visitor experience ranger at Hatfield Forest. But we're going to take a break for some more music. Share your favourite ancient trees in the comments section on worldradiogardening.com. We'd love to hear and see some of your top trees, forests and woodlands, the ones you relax in, the secret ones, and to find out about some of the tall tales attached to these wonderful green spaces. All you need to do is go to worldradiogardening.com and post in the comments section.
One of the famous trees that stood into the early part of the 20th century was something called the doodle oak. Now, this had a huge deformed base. And, well, David, I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about this particular tree, because it must have been maybe 900, 1,000 years old before to get to that yeah. sort of size. I mean, I think they've sort of estimated it. It could well be, yeah, about nine over 900 years old. It was an absolutely massive um, tree. And the, the word doodle, we don't quite know where doodle comes from. There's a number of explanations. But apparently, um, going back to what you were saying about its strange shape, is that a doodle sack is the sack of a bagpipe. And there are some sort of feelings that the doodle oak may have looked a little bit like the um, a bagpipe with its very stout base. And so, you know, that could well be the explanation for it, that it was called the, you know, after, after a bagpipe. But it was a very, very, fa it was a very famous, very famous tree. And in fact, it sort of last bore leaves, it's thing, it was in about, uh, 1858, which is when it sort of started to die, and it was then taken down later, sort of in the 20th century. Before then, parts of it were cut away. I think the, the 20th century saw its sort of final demise, and there was actually a poem written about it. Now, I'm not gonna not gonna read it tonight because it's um, 15 verses, each one of six lines. So it's an absolutely massively lengthy poem. It's a wonderful sort of mid-Victorian poem, as it were, by a man called Frederick Locker. Um, and it goes, as I say, into great detail about how wonderful this tree was. So it's really, you know, famous. And when it was cut down, it's thought that a lot of the timbers were used for at St Catherine's Dock in, in, in London uh, for the cranes and various other items there but you can still go and see the the site of the doodle oak and indeed there are posts marking its um its circumference i think 65 well, over 60 feet in circumference so it's an absolutely massive tree and um, what's rather nice is that it's thought that there's a tree not far away from it which is thought it may well be um growing on a sucker from the original base and it's sort of carrying on you know the the sun, as it were, of the of the doodle oak, the doodle oak mark two. So the tree is still sort of perhaps in existence through through its um its progeny. And do we think that that could bulge in time and start to produce a bit of a a bulbous base? It, well, I, I will say yes, because it will not be in my lifetime. So, <laughs> so there's no fear about that. We we don't know. We don't know. But yes, I mean, it could well do. Yes, I mean, it could well be of a similar genetic material to um, to the to the doodle and carry on. Yes, in that in that way. But there are a number of other very large trees hidden away in the forest. Um, in particular, actually, having said that, there's one that's fairly close to the to the um, cafe in the Shell House area that you can you can see. There's pretty close there, which is, as I say, a very substantial um, very substantial oak growing there. 
it is a real fabulous experience to be walking up one of those kind of forest glades through the middle of Hatfield Forest because you do get a sense of scale you know a large large forest that's very different to walking in say a woodland or a, or a wood and I think that's quite unusual nowadays isn't it for for us yes it is that. I mean the, the hoodlons loved their loved the forest they loved riding in it so they it was very they did a lot of these uh the rides were built by the hoodlons they cut out these these rides and, and very often you have um particular sort of marker trees at the at the intersection of rides so you've got eight once way and so they they would have these marker trees as it were so that they knew where they were in the forest and they also planted what we call the exotic trees which are the trees which are the, the pines the cedars which are the trees that are not native um essex trees they um and there's a redwood as well they would take part you know over the ownership the time they owned it they would have these trees and grow these trees as a, again as a bit of a status symbol these have often come from overseas so they're they're rather unusual in this country but they would also form markers and signposts for them so they would know where they where they were in the forest and one of the interesting issues with the forest of course is you know you often think about a historic house and if it's going to be redecorated what period do you decorate it in you know are you going to be decorating it in you know Tudor times or Stuart times or Victorian. With a forest, there's a similar sort of consideration. If an exotic tree comes down, one that is not native to Essex, what do you do? Do you replace it with an, an, an Essex oak or an Essex hornbeam, or do you replace it with another exotic tree? Uh, one is sort of an artificial scent tree in a sense, the, the exotic. Do you replace it? Do you go back to how the forest would have been before the before the hoodlons. It's a sort of a, a dilemma that you don't really always appreciate. You can understand it with with housing property, but you can't really understand it quite so readily with, with trees. No, it's a, an interesting debate and one that conservation more widely sort of thinks about, isn't it? Because you know, we have a landscape that's perhaps been shaped by farming. Well, it's not necessarily a natural landscape as it might have been prior to humans farming that land. So, yeah, like you say, what do you do about that? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. Mm, yeah, we're not going to solve it here, I don't think. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> but for you, David, if you, yeah, there's a lot of fun exploring the forest. I've been and spent a day trying to find where the doodle oak was there, you know, up uh, towards sort of Takeley end of the forest. But is there a, a place that you like to kind of go and take people that really is quite special and they might not necessarily find it if if they're walking about the forest on their own. Um, I'm not sure there's any particular place. I mean, my own sort of favourite little area is actually very close to the to the Shell House. It's round the sort of the decoy lake area. Mm -hmm. They're the smaller of the two lakes. It's a absolutely beautiful sort of place. It's very tranquil there, and I mean, again. Um, as well as the deer, there's a lot of other um, wildlife in the forest. And one of the um, birds, you get a lot of birds there on, on the lake. And one of the birds that you particularly can see sometimes on the um, on the decoy lake, a kingfisher. And of course, you know, kingfisher are sort of such an amazing, amazing bird to see. So very often I will go you know, there, but very rarely do you see a kingfisher, but it's always sort of worth a worth a, a glance there so yeah go to the you know, go to the um 
the decoy lake and then sort of wander around and hope to see or hear the the deer in particular when it comes to the rutting season um september october time um it's always worth wandering around and listening because you can hear the um the barking as it were of the of the um the buck bucks on looking for their for, for, for their ladies and that's a very spectacular time in the forest. But there's no one place, I think, in the forest. I think it's part of its joy, probably, is that you can, you know, you never know what you might encounter in terms of deer or in terms of um, birds, wherever you are in the forest. Mm. And we should say around the lake area, there's there's all, uh, there's a built path, isn't there? So there is actually good accessibility for people who perhaps are in wheelchairs and disabled people, isn't there? That's right. I mean, yes, one of the things that was built, uh, I think, 20 or 30 years ago is a is a boardwalk. You can sort of get yourself all the way around the forest. And um, I, I don't think it's in use at the moment because of the coronavirus um, restrictions. But, I mean, the forest does own a, a very he- a heavy-duty um, mobility vehicle for people who find, you know, walking difficult. So, it is you know, accessible to um, everything. And I must say, one of the great sort of times I had at the forest was there's an organisation called the Disabled Ramblers Group. I don't know whether it still exists, but this was perhaps 10 years ago. And this is a group of people who um, have their mobility restricted and they meet at places like Hatfield Forest and they met there and there was about, I think, about 15 um, large, you know, heavy duty buggies. Mm. And they, they went out for a ramble in the morning. And the idea was they'd come back for lunch. But they enjoyed their morning ramble so much that they um, had another ramble in the in the afternoon. So there was this group of say, 15 people plus you know, companions and so on out on their out on these very heavy duty um, mobility vehicles. And um, of course, what happened was, of course, we got they came back after their their ramble and the um, the, the man in charge at the time, the warden in charge at the time, said, oh, David, you would like to help um, clean the mud off them, wouldn't you? So there I was with a hose, trying to hose down all these um, large mobility buggies. But um, yes, I mean, it was real delight to see people enjoying themselves so much. And I always get a great deal of enjoyment when I see somebody, that's one of my functions as well, one of the tasks in the lake area, we have to... Um, we we let out the we let out the, uh, the the mobility vehicle, and we um, have to make sure you know the person knows how to ride it, you know how to control it, and everything else like that. But it's a real delight to see people enjoying the forest who wouldn't be able to necessarily walk there. All I would just say is that I'm not sure when it's going to be reintroduced, but it's always important to phone up in advance to book it because um, it has to be kept charged, of course, and secondly, to make sure that nobody else has, has borrowed it. But people, you know, we don't put any limit on it. We People go out for, you know, two or three hours at a time with it. One of the issues at the forest in recent years is sort of changing climates. The, the summers seem to be drier, which isn't a particular concern, but we're having... There are a number of issues because of the the wet winters we seem to be having. And the increase in the number of visitors to the forest, it seems to be, it it got up to about half a million people a year. And particularly over the winter months, the forest just could not um, cope with this number of visitors. And you mustn't forget that the forest is a national nature reserve. There's only about 225, I think, in the country. So it's quite... 
an accolade to have. So it's a national nature reserve and also a site of special scientific interest. So we do need to keep um, the numbers of visitors under control. And so if, um, four or five years ago, a scheme was introduced called Every Step Counts. And the idea is to try and encourage people to come more in the summer than in the wet winter months. I hope that's brought a little of some of our wonderful trees to life here on World Radio Gardening. I'll be back with more great tree beauties in the near future, only on World Radio Gardening. And remember, if you'd like to tell us about a tree, then please head to worldradiogardening.com and use the comments form to post on our news story features. Till next time, bye for now.